we were wrestling through, what will this record be? We learned to be present to each other. What is the big idea for this song? Because love starts regrowing. The continual struggle to love them, love across these differences. I recently was with family and watching both sides in tears. Just one acknowledgement. You've told your father that you love him and you've forgiven him. You haven't told him that you actually respect him. As broken as I might be, you know, as a faulty radio receiver, you're still receiving something. All is not lost. The making of a Brilliance album. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Brilliance Podcast. This episode dives into some material that may be inappropriate for younger listeners. So um, parents out there, you might want to switch to episode five or earlier. Also, just a reminder, all the audio you hear is derived from the track we're going to premiere. And with that, I'm going to send it over to David. This is episode six. Will we ever rise? We haven't released a podcast in a few weeks. I think personally it's because I felt so much tension about how do we respond to the current election cycle. And as we get through the holidays, how do we respond to those who we really disagree with? I found that time and time again, as I speak to loved ones who I really disagree with about certain things, that often comes down to language. We may really agree with the heart of the matter. However, the language that we use seems to really set up a spoke that divides. I recently was with family and watching both sides in tears just want acknowledgement. However, the language that we used was so hard for acknowledgement to actually happen. On one side, a group that felt shamed when we talked about things like privilege. Well, on one side, the generation that had come before had worked so hard and struggled so much. So to hear words that were trigger words spoken, it felt like an attack. And instead of learning, perhaps an acknowledgement of another person's pain, it came down to shaming. And on the other side, feeling like when you dismiss one's pain, that really it came down to an acknowledgement of you don't see their pain, you don't see their humanity. Will we ever rise? This is a song that I personally sing at my church often, and it seems like in this season I've sung more than probably worship leaders should sing at their church. I don't know, I get tired of singing the same songs over and over, but... Every week I sing this, I feel like I need to. This week, I wanted to explore a story with a dear friend who is gay, is a priest, and married a Buddhist. His story is one that it feels like, on a personal level, once again, language comes into play. But once again, learning how to see the other, hear their story, and have compassion. I hope that you enjoy the story. I hope that you listen curiously. 
without judgment, but really leaning into how does each side feel in this? And how can we learn from this story to be able to not always agree, but learning how to disagree with civility, humility, and really respect for the other. My name is Lang Leroy Lim. <laughs> good to meet you and, and good to share with you my story. As I was saying, I love sharing my story, but I have more and more of an awareness that it's never my story or your story. The stories we tell of our lives is the story of how we experience God working with us. <laughs> and I must have been told this when I was much younger, but now that I'm 52, I... I'm getting it. <laughs> you know, that's it. It's my story is God has worked with me and how I have responded. So I grew up in, in Singapore to English-educated parents. Uh, they were lapsed uh, seven days Adventist by the time I came along. They didn't go to college, but they had received an English education. And I was their first son. And as was the habit of the rising middle class in the 60s, you get a Chinese name and then you get an anglicized name. <laughs> and they wanted L's. And so uh, so I have Leroy as my middle name. And, and Leng means dragon because I was born in the year of dragon. Uh, my parents had marital difficulties when I was seven, and they separated. I really love my parents. Maybe I should tell my parents' story. My dad is a soft-hearted man who, when I was seven, met this woman. So I call her Aunt Jenny because I don't want her to be the woman. <laughs> and uh, he discovers that she had been sold by her parents to this Chinese businessman to be his second wife. And so, you know, that's outrageous. And it actually still outrageous that even happened in the 1960s, you know. And has a soft spot for her and befriends her. Well, the old man finds out and, of course, is furious and comes to my home and uh, wants to punch my father or something like that. And that's how my mother finds out he has an affair, but actually nothing had happened. So she throws him out and Jenny's thrown out. And so both of them are homeless. So then they get together and then they start a family of their own. And I have two half brothers and her story is really sad because she had two daughters and two sons by this man. And he kept the sons and threw her out with her daughters. I mean, just the most hateful sort of stuff. So my dad's life is in tatters, Jenny's is, my mom is, mine is, it's just all this stuff. Uh, and then they become Christians. And then it's Jenny who says to my, Auntie Jenny who says to my father, now that we have become Christians, why don't you go back to your first wife? <laughs> right? So he goes back to uh, my mom. And then they have a discussion and they say, well, Jenny is uneducated. And doesn't have a profession, how is she going to live? So in Singapore, there's this system where the government gives you public housing that you can buy, but you can only buy it as a family unit, so you have a married couple. So this is where my mom and dad decide to get a divorce, because they actually never divorced, they'd only been separated. They decided to get a divorce so that he could marry her and get her the housing. 
Then, then now they've cleared up all the papers and they're actually now re legally remarried. So that's how they're sorting this thing out. And so as an only child and quite lonely, had a more introspective bent. And uh, someone, uh, actually a teacher in my grade school, gave me a storybook and it was a Christian storybook, meaning it was Christian fiction. But in it was a boy who was lonely as well who was presented the gospel by a neighbor, a neighbor who was known to be a witch. She was just a lovely old lady who shared with him the gospel and uh, said that Jesus is there to be his friend. And so he said the sinner's prayer and I repeated along as the leader, but also as a participant in that story. And simply remembered bursting into tears and feeling the incredible befriending of God in, in me. Jesus Christ had come to take up residency in my heart. <laughs> and it was so powerful, it was also embarrassing because I didn't know who to talk to. Almost a sense of like if I share this with my mom or dad, you know, it would be too tender a story and they wouldn't know what to do with it. So I kept that secret. But I had this secret friend. <laughs> People have secret animal friends, but mine was the son of God. Fast forward two or three years later, I, I found myself at a rally in the Anglican Cathedral in Singapore. Uh, I think I went with my mom. She had a chronic ailment. She wanted healing. I went, there was an altar call, I went forward, we got separated, people were speaking in tongues and falling on the ground, and I thought it was strange, but not, not alarmed. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that before, so, you know, it was not stranger than anything I've known, right? Yeah, I didn't have a negative reaction. And I remembered uh, uh, going up to the bishop like he was the bishop, he was a charismatic, within the charismatic movement. And um, he didn't even listen to what my prayer request was. He just laid hands on me and prayed. And oh my gosh, I felt this fire, electricity, warmth throughout my, my body. It was frightful, not frightening, just frightful, but delicious. And bam, my knees buckled and I'm on the ground. It, what I now call ecstatic joy. Then felt like, no, God is real. <laughs> God is physically real. <laughs> and was part of that charismatic movement for many years in Singapore. So I pause because that was also uh, the beginning of my difficulties with, and what shall I call it, with the church, with Christianity, with evangelical Christians. I, I don't quite know what is the, the noun. <laughs> uh, maybe in the end it was my quarrel with God. But I knew uh, I was attracted to men and a homosexual, that was the word, 
one would have used and went to Christian bookstores looking for some answers. Uh, there were few books to be found uh, and the ones that were available, the best said it was a passing phase. <laughs> the vast majority said it was a terrible sin. Most suggested that if you were truly a Christian, God would change you. So then what got called into question for me was, for my, I, I mustn't be a Christian, you know, I mustn't be a Christian. Uh, so, so, something's wrong. I, did, did I not fully accept Jesus as Lord? Or I chosen to be baptized. So what has gone wrong? Did I not repent enough so that my acceptance of Jesus as my Savior was conditional on my repenting? And, and then all the confusion, you know, is my repentance a, a, a good work I'm supposed to do? I thought faith saves, not work. So does, does repentance become a kind of work? Okay, so then if it's faith and not how hard I repent, then there's something wrong with my faith. So I'm going to all these charismatic rallies and going up for the altar call and wanting to get healed. I wouldn't tell the healer what my issue was. I thought like, you know, God, if you know what it is, you know, he should know, right? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, son, I know you're homosexual. Let me heal you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so and I now say it with humor, but uh, it was, uh, it was awful. The problem then not anymore. The problem then was finding myself caught between two loves. Uh, the fact that every now and then there would be a male friend I would find myself really drawn to. And, and I would say, yes, attractive. Certainly there was sexuality, but it was not just that. It was drawn to. I, I wanted to be closer. I wanted to be connected to my heart. I think we forget uh, how much young people of whatever orientation, uh, when they're young, it's the beginning of love that they feel. That's what's so traumatizing. <laughs> it's not just that you're horny, it's that it comes with a heart opening and you don't quite know what to do with that. For me, there have been these moments of having close male friendships and that I knew was becoming more than friends. I, and then I, I am told this is wrong, and so I'm caught with between my love of God and this other impulse of the heart. That's the difficulty. I think it has all been misconstrued to say, well, it's about sex. Come on, ask any teenager, gay, straight, or whatever, it's not about sex. A depressed 14-year-old, our oh, hormone sex. Yeah, of course, that's that, but the hormones and the sex just intensifies what's going on in a heart, that's all. And then I was fortunate to uh, win a scholarship to a wonderful international high school called United World College, founded to promote peace and understanding among young people. There are 15 of them around the world now. I was uh, chosen to represent Singapore. And so it was my first time leaving Singapore and I went to the US, to New Mexico. It was beautiful. I was up in the mountains. I saw stars for the first time. In Singapore, you see like five stars because it's you know humid and it's an equator and it's a city. 
I saw stars. Good heavens. Yes, good heavens, indeed. I saw stars, you know, the Milky Way. Thousands, actually millions of them. And I'm in nature. And my theological struggles, and of course there are attractive boys there that I'm struggling not to have feelings for. But I go out into nature, and I'm hiking, and I'm rock climbing, and I start understanding that God is in nature. And I'm in nature, and I feel love. You know that old evangelical song, How Great Thou Art, Behold the Stars. Well, now we get it. So nature uh, started really becoming, for me, another source of a direct experience of God's goodness. What bears witness to God? Scripture, you think of it. It's not just that paper text called the Bible. Nature is scripture. The goodness and the love of God and the diversity of God, it's just here. And if it's in nature, it's also in me, it's also in my body. And so um, my experiences are also another valid way to say this is who God is. Now, not exclusive. So exclusive, then I become a kind of a, you know, <laughs> self-inflated messiah maniac, right? Like, but that I'm not an invalid source of knowing God as sinful and broken as I might be, you know, as a faulty radio receiver. There's lots of static. You're still receiving something. What is true of me is true of you. That helped me break out of the biblical fundamentalism that had been part of my early upbringing. I finished Princeton, I go to seminary. Uh, one, it was to sort out for myself my own theological beliefs. I, you know, I was now out as a gay man, but then how, like, how do I be a gay Christian? <laughs> because uh, in the 80s, 90s, uh, you know, so much of the Christian talk in this country was uh, not just hostile, it was violent. And many people who grew up with a Christian background just simply rejected their faith. You know. Throughout the bath water, and who cares about a baby? <laughs> For me, it was not, not possible. I didn't want to, because I had these experiences of closeness with, uh, with God. Uh, I could not, uh, and then I could not forget. It was part of who I, who I was, who I am. Uh, so seminary was a good place to, to work that through. At Union Theological Seminary in New York City uh, had feminist liberation theology, black liberation theology, and gay liberation theology, so that's why I went. The only reason I went to seminary was also as a major at Princeton. I was thinking of being a diplomat back in Singapore or doing economics to essentially help make a better world. And I remembered in this economic class with this professor who was telling us how microeconomics markets work perfectly to allocate resources, right? <laughs> and I put up my hand and I said, sir, I didn't use his first name because I came from Singapore. I mean, everyone's a sir. Sir, <laughs> markets work perfectly to allocate resources. Why are there poor black people in Trenton? <laughs> and this was not a naughty question. I'd just come to the US and this was my third year. Not into the whole 
U.S. dialogue around racism. This was just a foreign student, international student, just perplexed, yeah. right? Taking a train to Trenton, and you see, like, my goodness, this town is terrible. It's not like Princeton, New Jersey, yeah. right? And it's poor, and they're black. And why are there poor black people? It's not a racist question about, like, is there something wrong with black people? It's just simply a question of, in this society of yours, I see that you have black people and they are poor. Yeah. And you tell me that your market works well. Why? <laughs> Innocent question. And he said, oh, young man, we are positivists in this class. For your normative question, go next door to the religion department. <laughs> uh, but my question was not a normative question about about uh, values. My question actually was, in fact, a positivist question. In fact, why do you have a class of people who are poor? <laughs> what does your economics say? Um, anyway, he didn't answer my question. Uh, the economics department didn't. I went over to the religion department, and uh, Cornell West was there as a professor. And I started taking courses in American history uh, philosophy, Red Emerson, and Du Bois, uh, and um, you know, Franz Fanon, The Wretched of the Earth, and started looking at racism and colonialism and reading liberation theology. And that was where my Christian faith came alive for, well, it must be the third or fourth time. I think throughout one's life, you know, this, this flame that God gives us uh, at however you want to call it, when you receive Jesus or at baptism or confirmation, whatever you, you name your first moment, you know, we, we get to have a new log put in. <laughs> you know, and the, for me, the new log was reading the gospel where Jesus is in solidarity uh, with the poor and the marginalized and the heartbroken and the oppressed and the shamed and the outcast. The materialism that has been the blessing of American society and it's a mixed blessing because that has come partly from exploitation but still we're blessed to have good things uh, materialism ain't gonna make nobody happy and right with god on the other hand if you don't have the basics you're going to be deeply unhappy and it is a right for every human being to have access to some of the basics and we can't agree on that in this country you know, the, the secular left, or even the secular right, has no space for the transcendent. And evangelicals hold that gem, but they get so preoccupied with the anxieties about sex, good heavens, and gender. You know, that's like, loosen up. You can still be in love with, with God without getting all twisted up over that. But the other parts where, like, yeah, to have an experience of the transcendence, that, that this life is not just a materialism, that no, it isn't just about me winning over you. We are called in our baptism to be new creations, uh, to have economic relationships with, with each other that are wholesome and not based on exploitation. You can be exploitative while still being legal. Let's get that clear. <laughs> we have a lot of legal exploitation going on. America can be a light upon a hill, but it's got to be a different kind of a light in a different hill. I think this is again the fruits of getting older. 
and, and having the blessings of it is actually uh, my relationship with my parents. When I chose to come out to them, um, I, I saw I would come out to them before I turned 30. So the moment I turned 30, I told them. Uh, it was incredibly difficult and horrifying for all of us because my dad brought out the Bible, turned it to Sodom and Gomorrah, and started quoting scriptures at me while my mother chased me around the apartment trying to lay hands on me in order to exorcise the demon out of me. And it's comical to think of it now, like a terrible B-grade movie. Uh, but that's some deep part, I mean, you know, it's, it's awful. Uh, I chose to individuate, meaning I chose to be myself, so that's for my own psychological health. So I didn't see them for seven years. Uh, and, and that did a very important work of uh, being myself. But as Rabbi Friedman suggested, one should differentiate, but one should also stay connected. So I did stay connected meaning I did not choose to, to cut off. And, and they, to their credit, did not disown to me. Their persistence on trying to change me and bring me to reparative therapy came out of love, but really, really misguided. We had a few encounters where they have changed over time, in part because uh, my, uh, my partner of 21 years is a, just a lovely human being, I think they, they could not help themselves but realize that like, he was a good guy, you know, just that he was a guy. <laughs> and and uh, they came to our wedding, although they said, oh, we are Christians, we can't, we, can't, uh, we can't condone this. So I said, well, come for the party then. So they came, so they came and then the ceremony was taking place. So they said, we'll come to the ceremony, but, but we come blessed. So, so I said, okay, fine, then you can sit in the back row. <laughs> So, so they tried. They tried hard. I want to describe the kind of evangelical my parents are. They are not college educated. They love the Lord. Uh, they read books which I think they shouldn't read because it just narrowed their minds. But I also saw that it gave them hope, right? So it's complex, you know. It gave them some kind of hope. My dad said, "I I have to talk to you before I die." Uh, one thing I said, "What? What one thing?" And he said. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I said, okay, good. I know where that phrase comes from. You've been reading those books. <laughs> this is my father completely upfront. And rather than get defensive, I thought, let's get into inquiry. And I think I understand where he's coming from. So I said to him, well, let's talk about the nature of God then, rather than the nature of human sexuality. Who is God? So I said, if God is creator, is God also creator? So God is creative. So God has created our hands for what? We eat with it, we write with it, we care for babies with it. Okay, yeah. Can we also kill with it? Yes. Many purposes to our hands. So God created us with mouths, what our mouths were. Eating, yes. Okay, speaking, yes. Well, what about kissing? <laughs> and what about oral sex? <laughs> So yeah, mouth can be used for oral sex. Straight people do it. So I said, okay. Same thing with the anus. Yeah, so defecation. It also has lots of nerve endings. It's pleasurable and it can, it's a sex organ. And hey, it's not just gay people, straight people yeah. too. <laughs> my father at that point, <laughs> lived up and said, oh my gosh, if you think that the anus is a sex organ, 
We have nothing to say anymore. He never brought up the subject again. Never pushed for us to change. He says, it's just between you and God. The next year, we gave them a vacation to go to Paris. And that was great and also not great because they didn't like to see Home and I holding hands, but they came. In other words, we learned to be present to each other. We didn't agree. We still had these outbursts of pain where they would say something and I would react. I would say something and they would react. And so we learned not to talk about some things that were painful. Like they would ask me, you know, so do you believe, you know, so you have all these Buddhist images, you know, gosh, you know, you go from being gay to having Buddhist images, you know, that's idolatry. I'm like, okay, we're not going to, we can't go there. But can we just be present with each other? And so the great gift that God taught us was, okay, we can be present to each other. We can still enjoy each other. There are ways to love each other. Because love starts regrowing. My dad asked me to go with him to Nepal. So he's been a missionary to Nepal for 25 years. Now, my, my dad was the man who failed to launch and he started working as a janitor. And uh, so he lives off my mother's pension. And then he works as a janitor. He works as my janitor, although I can very well give him an allowance. He doesn't need that, but he wants to work as my janitor to clean up my apartment because he says, I want to take money to give to my sons and daughters in Nepal. Now, I'm not converting people who have their own religion. That's my own philosophy. But my dad wants to do that. And so it's like, great, go do it. In other words, grudgingly, I'm admiring him. Uh, and then uh, one evening in, in a ceremony, not a Christian one, let's say of a Native American bent type of ceremony, <laughs> the feminine voice of God spoke to me and said, you know, you've told your father that you love him and you've forgiven him for his infidelities. You haven't told him that you actually respect him. Because this man works as a janitor to, to go to Nepal twice a year. So I go with him to Nepal because he wants me to see his ministry. And I see huts that he's built, churches, church buildings he's built, people coming to shake his hands. And of course, another part of me says, you know, he's bringing free clothing and just like Christian missionaries from the past, you know, there's always giveaways and that's always been part of the colonial enterprise. And, and so he's doing the same thing in some ways because they are poor and they're coming to him because of that. But it's not just that. They're having community. People are helping them. And he's transformed and he's become a generous man. And I go like, wow. His interpretation of the gospel is not mine, this strict biblicalism. But is he touching lives? Is God using him? Yes. It's wrong of me to say that this is a colonial enterprise. He's loving them. They are. Not perfect. Ah, that's the other thing. There is a perfection. <laughs> the good deeds we do, there's a perfection. But that forces me to also accept my parents as they are. My mother's big sadness was that I wouldn't have children. And then fast forward, my half-brothers now have children. And they need childcare. And my mom is taking care of them. And so this is my mother with whom I've uh, struggled. I'm an only child for so long. 
And I just realize she's full of love. I don't like a theology. I think part of it is just wrong. But I like the practice of her life. I like how she's practicing her life. Uh, and of course, what, what we're talking about here with Christianity in this country is everyone's obsessed about Christian orthodoxy, meaning what is a right belief. But the Jewish roots of our faith is autopraxy. What are, you, what are the right practices? And, and not only just autopraxy, we might just call it orthogeography. God is actually calling us to find ourselves in the right place. Not the right belief or necessarily the right practice as in hand washing. How do you find yourself in the right place? In the right place with you and God, in the right place with me and you. You know, and my parents are now in the right place. And that's been a big teaching for me. So I go with them to the New Creation Church because my mom is very happy when I go with her to church. Do I like the church service? No, the music is too loud. I don't like the bangy, bangy music, you know, and I don't like uh, a theology that just all, you know. But that's okay. It's not wrong, you see. There are so many other ways God speaks uh, to us. You know, they find my Episcopalian service old and dull. And yeah, it is kind of old and dull. The, the thing now is how do we enrich each other? How do we grow each other? And each other, I mean progressives, liberals, evangelicals, the church in Singapore is a mega church, right? It's 30,000 people. They like it and they say, we like it so much because... Pastor Prince keeps on telling us, it's grace, it's grace. And they finally get it, you know. I said, why didn't you get it before when I was telling you? They said, well. <laughs> and so I said, what do you think about, you know, my being gay? I said, well, up to, it's up to you and God. And I think that's a theologically honest thing. So my parents are visiting us last year. Uh, for my father's 80th birthday and my husband home uh, says to them you know I, I, I haven't called you mom and dad I, I called you by the Asian term of reference uncle and auntie I want to call you mom and dad and dad says well uh, if, if you call me mom and dad then what do I call you son-in-law but then I don't have a daughter I have a son but you can't be a daughter-in-law because you're a man. Okay, so it's only a man and wife can be married. And so we start going round and round in this spiral of no gay marriage. And, and so we, we've been down that road so many times about what the Bible says about that. But then I asked a different set of questions. I said, so if I were to die, uh, and you know, I have a really modest apartment in Singapore that belongs to me. The laws in Singapore wouldn't recognize our marriage. So it would flow to you, my parents asked uh, a mix of kin. So what would you do with that? And he said, oh, we'll keep half, and the other half we give to home. Home is my partner's name. Like, wow. So then I said, uh, and if I were to fall ill, in Singapore, where my U.S. will, where power of attorney doesn't apply, 
So you now have to make decisions for me as my ex of kin. What would you do? And he said, who makes the decision? I'm too old now. I'm at the end of my life. You know, he's been close to you. He wouldn't use your, your partner, your couple, you know. You're both so close. He's the closest person in your life. He makes the decision for you. So I'm sitting back going like, they're just not going to use the words, but they recognize the reality of what's going on. So finally we ended the dinner. Okay, I call you son. You're my son in Christ. I have so many sons in Christ. And Holmes says, great, I'm your son in Christ. <laughs> and that's it. And we're not going to talk about gay marriage and gay sex and, you know, what the Bible says. Because, you know, where is Christ? Christ isn't my dad. You know, this guy who really wasn't a great father when I was younger and made all these mistakes and, you know, was too young to be a father. We all probably realize that. <laughs> and, and then, you know, he's humble enough to turn his life around. And the reality is that that's Christ at work because that's a man trying to love, right? And then I think he's recognized that in my life, the continual struggle to love, to love them, love across these differences, and that woman and I have been supporting each other for 21 years and that that's love. Ubi caritas Deus ibs from Monastery at Teze, you know, where love is, God is present. And this is what we mean by the incarnation of Christ. And Jesus was born in a stable full of, am I allowed to use the four-letter mm -hmm. word, shit, yeah. you know? And so, so in the shit of our lives, God is there. Born in shit. Right? In the thing itself. <laughs> Not hovering above. Engaged. And that's what we mean by incarnation. Not just Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. Yes, the only begotten Son of God, but as Paul says, the firstborn. Not the only born. The firstborn. So we are the secondborn and the thirdborn. To me, that's the evangelical message. Christ is born, all is not lost. We now present to you, in its entirety, track seven, Will We Ever Rise? Will we ever rise? Will we ever rise above the fear? Can we learn to see the need? Can we share humanity? I can see another day come. Broken people we can be. Breaking us 
Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can learn more about our new album on our website, thebrilliancemusic.com. Please be sure to follow us, The Brilliance Music, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel for album videos. We also would love to address any questions you may have and would love to hear about what you think about these songs. So email us at thebrilliancemusic at gmail.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and rate it on iTunes. Share with your friends, neighbors, loved ones, or anyone who will listen. It's your support, whatever that means for you, that makes it possible for us to do this. And we're grateful. Until next week, this is John Arndt, signing off. This podcast was produced by John Arndt and David Gunger. All interviews conducted by David Gunger. Editing, sound design, and mix by John Arndt.